how do you become an island unto yourself? Uh, not to exile yourself, but to have that capacity if needed. I'm Krati Mehra, and this is Beyond the Goals podcast. It's my attempt to help you revel in all that life has to offer without pressing pause on your hustle. We learn how to create healthier relationships, a healthier lifestyle, a career that brings us true joy, and a life that satisfies us on every level. Forget the conventional ideas of success and happiness, because we're going to live a life of value and create an impact that speaks to our place in the world. So let's get started. Welcome back to Beyond the Goals. This is our very first interview episode, and it's a pretty important one. We're going to discuss how we can master the art of being alone. COVID-19 brought with it a lot of tragedy, but it also exposed some of our weaknesses, like our inability to be alone without experiencing psychological distress, which is also one of the reasons why we stay in toxic relationships despite the emotional abuse that comes our way. So if you want to be more self-contained and have a strong internal system that supports your external pursuits but doesn't allow them to control your joy, you need to learn to find comfort in your own company and control your thoughts. Two skills that today's guest has down to an art form. Arnie Kozak is a master of meditation and mindfulness. That's not his official title though. He's a licensed psychologist and clinical assistant professor in psychiatry. He has also written several books, all of them focused on helping people use mindfulness as a tool to enhance the quality of their lives. There is a ton of insight in this interview, and I cannot wait for you to hear it. So let's get started. Before we dive into the discussion, I want to uh, share a study that was mentioned in one of your articles. Uh, it was a 2014 study wherein the participants were asked to sit in a room for 15 minutes without distraction. And there was a button in the room with, which they could use to electrocute themselves. And before the study commenced, all of these participants stated that they would pay money to avoid being shocked. But at the end of the study, about 67% of the men and 25% of women chose to shock themselves rather than just sit quietly with their thoughts. Considering everything that has been going on in the past few months around the world, I think it makes sense. People have been isolated to a certain extent and uh, they have slipped into depression. Their anxiety seems to have gotten worse. So uh, it makes sense that you know people don't do well in solitude. But the thing is that people also don't really prioritize spending time alone. They don't prioritize cultivating the ability to enjoy their own thoughts. Because I think there's this general idea that if you don't go out every Friday and if you don't have an active social life, you're not as much in demand. And you've said it yourself in one of your articles that people uh, associate solitude with loneliness. So I just want you to uh, start by telling our listeners why it's so important to spend time alone and how it impacts our inner strength. Well, uh, yeah, I've written an entire book about it, The Awakened Introvert, which um, focuses on um, cultivating those introvert qualities. And of course, we live in, in a very extroverted society, at least here in the US. Uh, and it sounds like, you know, those are the norms, the expectation for socializing and, um, you know, a lot of our self-worth and identity is embedded in social situations. And we really get very little encouragement or training in how to be alone. I think that that's, that's probably something lacking in the curriculum for the most part. 
And yeah, and if the people who are alone feel deficient in some way or are made to be uh, feel deficient uh, because they're not part of the part of the group. Um, and of course, we are social animals, but within the context of being a social animal, it's, I think, vitally important to spend time in solitude, to, um, to know ourselves, to recharge ourselves so that we can then engage in these social contacts uh, at other times. And um, so that's a little bit of a, a background. Why is it important? Well, COVID-19 makes it very important because we might find ourselves in a situation where we're, I mean, we didn't really expect or, or maybe not prepared for something like this, but it's a perfect example of all of a sudden our situations are, um, you know, our normal situations are, we're cut off from them and we've got to figure out something else. And so this, this crisis has put a lot of this in, in perspective. So if we can, make our own company, feel comfortable within ourselves, entertain ourselves, explore ourselves, know ourselves, do all those types of intro, introverted or introspective types of things, then we have degrees of freedom. We can maybe cope better in a situation where all of a sudden we're deprived from our usual social routines. And even outside of a crisis, there are, there are lots of situations we often find ourselves in where, um, I don't know, where our phone doesn't have a signal or plans fall through or we're just stuck somewhere or we're traveling and we're waiting. And these are all situations which can be I guess, boring at best and sometimes distressing for, for people if they're not comfortable in their own skins uh, and perhaps used to exploring. And not like those people in the study where if you're left alone with your own thoughts, you'd rather electrify yourself repeatedly uh, because it's so unpleasant. So, you know, that's, I mean, that study, and I, I hadn't thought about that study for a while, is a great example of, wow, we are really ill-equipped. The average person with, uh, you know, what the Buddha might call an untrained mind is really ill-equipped to deal with um, certain types of situations. And uh, so that's, that's, I guess, would be a liability you might want to address. And now, it's gone from something more hypothetical or experimental to actual where we're being. Um, well, actually, I, I guess in some senses, you're lucky if you can have solitude during COVID because sometimes you're just stuck with um, your family and not having respite. But um, a lot of people are if you're you know, living alone and you're, you're spending more time alone probably. So for people who enjoy this constant engagement, they are on this constant stream of social activities, uh, what would you suggest they do to decrease the time they spend around others? They spend uh, engaged with digital devices and people with cramped social lives and cramped to-do lists. What can they do? What are some practical steps they can take to begin this process of enjoying uh, their own thoughts and spending time by themselves? Yeah. Well, 
there are a number of things we can do. Uh, maybe a f good place to start, I think it's on Sundays, Apple sends a notice with all of your screen time stats, how many times you picked up your phone, how much time you spent on your phone. So you might want to look at that and just probably be astonished about how much time you're spending in your phone. And then ask yourself, is this how I really want to be spending my life? Do I really want to be dependent on this, this device? Um, that's, you know, it's obviously an amazing device that connects us to the world. Um, but do I want to be so dependent on it? Do I want my well-being to be contingent upon its availability and what happens in that situation? And, and if you do, then good luck. Um, but if you don't want to be so dependent, then we need to, it's, it's like any, anything new or any new skill we want to learn. We actually have to practice it. So we would need to practice being alone by ourselves. And I mean, there's lots of things we can do. Just take digital breaks, put the phone down, use the do not disturb mode. That's a great uh, place to start. Maybe just start with small bits of time, like not necessarily going on a silent meditation retreat, although that's an option too but little sips of quiet time and build up. Start with five minutes, 10 minutes, you know, don't touch your phone for an hour, two hours. You can maybe take a day. I mean, there's lots of sources you can look about digital fasting and, and partitioning that kind, of, that kind of time. My preference, of course, also is meditation. I think that that's a great way to literally get to know ourselves. We're actually studying our own experience. We're paying attention to our own experience and not just the stories that we tell ourselves, but our actual lived experience in any given moment. So there's that physicality to it, the senses, uh, what our senses are experiencing and, and what's happening. So that's a way to uh, develop a sense of comfort with ourselves or familiarity, at least it's not always uh, going to be comfortable, but that this is a way that we can, uh, we can cultivate. There are, there are many different activities that can bring us into the interior. Uh, most creative endeavors, uh, certainly, uh, usually, you know, you're doing that work by yourself, whether it's writing or painting or any other kind of creative activity, um, Nature provides lots of opportunities for hiking, walking alone in the woods, biking, you know, there's just endless kinds of activities one can do, um, swimming, uh, where you're spending time with yourself, engaging with the world. Okay, so we begin by uh, establishing awareness of just how dependent we are on our devices and uh, on other people for company. Then we take small steps with like digital, small digital breaks and, uh, you know, increase the time we spend away from devices uh, in small intervals. We do digital fasting, meditation, creative activities and nature walks as well. Those are some easy steps I think people can take because meditation and, uh, you know, complete disengagement is not possible for everyone, but definitely smaller breaks are possible. Right. Well, and you can kill two birds with one stone. I mean, if you really want to stay connected to your device, you can use meditation apps to, <laughs> to 
to do that. So you don't have to feel so deprived um, with that. That makes sense. Uh, I have experienced in uh, my own life and I've seen other people who are highly sensitive do this, that they create a rich inner world and whenever they are confronted with difficult situations, they tend to withdraw into themselves. They recuperate, they regroup and they come back stronger. But not everybody is able to do that because not everybody even understands what it means to have an inner world. I think it, there's a reason why that happens because a lot of people just fail to meet all their emotional and mental needs within themselves. So how does a person go about building an inner world that meets their emotional needs and uh, helps them through difficult times? Well, having an understanding of what one's emotional needs are is uh, probably a good starting point. And as you're suggesting, it's not, it's not a one-size-fits-all process for all people. And, you know, I, when I work with my patients, I, I, I developed this motto or little aphorism to help them. And it was, what's the best way to take care of myself in this moment? And I think that to the extent that we can have the more options we have to address that question, the more self-care options we have, probably the better off we'll be. Dan Siegel, the mindfulness researcher, talks about the healthy mind platter, you, you know, all the different things you can put on that platter. So um, turning within is uh, one powerful way, I think, you know, meditation, um, contemplation, not always meditating, but contemplating, um, exploring our inner world, teasing out what what's going on, how we feel about things, what our values are, all of that is important, as well as connecting with friends or with trusted others, maybe even therapists, if that's an option. Um, there are lots of different ways, uh, of course, reading and, and writing. I have a, a journaling technique that I developed. You know, there's the whole world of, of journaling types of practices and um, Natalie Goldberg in Writing Down the Bones has talked about journaling as a meditation practice in and of itself. Um, so, and um, uh, Julia Cameron's um, morning pages technique is I think a very powerful technique for getting out of our, some of our internal self-talk uh, that gets in the way of creativity and inhibits us and so forth. So there's a way of writing. It's a free form style of writing that they both recommend. Um, and, you know, I think that one of the issues when you, when you commit something to paper, when you write something down, it becomes a public document, it becomes a public object. And of course, that could be seen by others, right? You know, somebody can break into your diary and read what you've written, what you thought you've written in complete privacy. Um, but even if you, nobody's ever going to look at it, just, just the act of writing, we, we have an assumed audience or projected audience. So in my technique, when you, when you write, you fill up the page normally, you're writing this free form, you're just writing stream of consciousness without editing, without um, censoring, just whatever comes to mind. And then when you fill up the page, you turn the book, your notebook, 90 degrees, and then you write over what you've, you've been writing. So what happens is that now it becomes something else. It becomes a pattern 
the words are obscured. You write over what you've written, and you can do that multiple times. You fill up, you can do four times. You, you won't be able to recognize anything of what you've written. So you're taking these stories, maybe what's troubling you in this situation, the stress you were talking about, and you're transforming it into something else. Actually, the, the patterns are very interesting uh, when you write in this way, and you can do it with different colors and magic markers, and there's lots of different ways that you can play around with that and experiment. And when I've done this in workshops, people find this a very powerful experience. They're able to let go of things because they're literally letting go. They're, they're taking it from this embedded story in their minds and then putting it out into another form. And it becomes completely private even to yourself. And, and so it helps to let go. And I think it's also a very powerful exercise in what the Buddha noted, the importance of impermanence, right? It's, it's not permanent. It, whatever, like you, you write it down, you, well, you know, you publish it in a book or a memoir, that's one form and that's an enduring form, but this is very ephemeral and it's, it's changing. Can you share how you, your journey began, how your mindfulness journey began? What was the first step you took down this road? Yeah, well, hard to know exactly what the first step was. There were a number of things that probably were pushing me in this direction, um, even from, from childhood. But um, before I became <clears throat> involved with mindfulness meditation, which is a very specific form of meditation, most associated with with the buddha it's very similar to what the buddha practiced um 2500 years ago um prior to that for a number of years i was doing a um i had a, an indian guru and i was doing um you know a more of a mystical hindu type of meditation practice uh, bhakti yoga practice so uh and it was actually when i was in india in Bogaya that um, I had encountered uh, Vipassana is the term for what gets translated as insight and much of that overlaps with when we talk about mindfulness meditation. So when I came back from India after that, I wound up sitting one of these 10 day silent meditation retreats, which is the traditional way of, of learning insight meditation. So you go, to a retreat center, you, I mean, back then there were no cell phones to relinquish. <laughs> uh, this was 1989, um, but you're taking a vow of what they call noble silence. So you're not going to be talking, socializing, making eye contact even with people. I mean, if you need to talk to a staff member or something, that's one thing, but no elective socializing. You're letting go of reading, of writing, of all of your normal activities and devoting yourself from morning till night to meditation practice. And I thought, you know, I've been meditating for, you know, it was probably seven or more years at that point in serious fashion. And had traveled in India and I'm like, oh, this will be a piece of cake. And it was the hardest experience of my life. Um, and the most valuable probably as well. Uh, it's really quite something 
to, to do nothing other than sit with your experience all day long. The day is extremely long and without the usual trappings and distractions and entertainments and projects that we have, it's really quite different. And you're confronting yourself in a way that you would never otherwise confront. Now, ultimately, that's a, a very powerful transformative experience, but you know, there's a, it's, it's difficult, um, and especially for me. <laughs> and even though I'm very much introverted and uh, love to be alone, the, that kind of intensity is, well, it's intense to sit like that. So that's been my practice. It's 30 some years now. Um, so I sit and you know, occasionally go back on retreats and I'd have my own practice. And then of course I started writing about mindfulness and meditation and, and Buddhism and teaching uh, as well. So that's just sort of how I stumbled into it. And now I'm, you know, I'm very interested in it this idea of, of separating the Buddha from Buddhism, that if we go back to the original Buddha, he seems much more like a psychologist, which, you know, of course, I'm a psychologist too, than a religious founder of a religion and a prophet in the sense that we understand that. So, you know, Buddhisms have preserved his teachings over the centuries, but hey, they've changed them as well and made them into religions when it was really a very psychological introspective process that and to tie into the theme of what we're talking about here he really wanted to encourage people to be self-sufficient to not be reliant on uh, religious authorities on doctrine on dogma he wanted even moral rules and laws it, you know morality is very context dependent and he wanted people to think for themselves and really not just follow rules but really wrestle with the moral implications of every thought and action that, that they took. And people just can't handle that kind of responsibility. Um, and so they want, they want like authority. And, you know, so the B Buddhist religions took root after he died and proliferated and you know, spread throughout Asia and now have come to the West. And uh, so that's, that's an interesting interesting process, but he, I mean, there's very, some very famous quotes. He said, you know, why you should be an island unto yourself, right? This was like a, some of the last words that are attributed to him. And so, yeah, we're, we're, and we're sort of talking about how do you become an island unto yourself? Uh, not to exile yourself, but to have that capacity if needed um, and, and cultivate that too. I think it's, it's valuable to cultivate it, um, whether or not, you know, we need it acutely in a crisis like, like this. That's true. And I think I've also experienced what you've just described. For me, when I'm meditating, it's like you're in free fall and everything is just open to, you know, you can modify everything in your mind and come back to the same situation with a very different uh, ideas. But I think meditation is not easy for everyone. As you said, it's it's you confronting yourself. And a lot of people find that very difficult and even disturbing. I've in fact read a study where this person, after spending a lot of time at a retreat, like the one yeah. you described, came out and stepped in front of a speeding car. 
so his depression actually got worse and clearly he must have been disturbed enough to do that kind of damage to himself so for people who suffer from active anxiety uh people who find it difficult to sit with their own thoughts what can you suggest what alternative forms of meditation can you suggest uh, that are just as comforting and that are just as constructive yeah and and on that point of meditation intensive meditation especially in a retreat in that silent intensive retreat is not for everybody and typically uh, retreat centers screen for mental disorders that would um, be uh, you know prohibit you from doing that and uh, maybe this person was not screened properly uh, because yeah if you do have an underlying mental illness the, the intensive meditation can make that worse um, that's you know not necessarily the case for for everybody, but there there is that risk, and you know we think oh mindfulness is just you know completely side effect free. Well, no, uh, not necessarily. So you, it's a good question, and you know garden variety anxiety or mild depression is probably not a contraindication for it. You know we can work through that, but. People with who have experienced trauma, let's say, who have intensive anxiety, then yes, that just doing silent seated meditation is uh, probably not always the best thing for them to be doing or even possible. And you would not want to like start start that way. So what can we do? Um, and if you think about anxiety, what is anxiety? Let's say it's the body's the body mind's response to a threat. It's preparing the body, your, your mental perception and your, your physiology, we're getting you ready for potential uh, action to respond to that threat. So already sitting still is going to be difficult because you've got all that energy in your body. So there are many different forms of meditation that don't require just sitting still. There's walking meditation. So just sometimes just getting up and doing the walking meditation, which can be done slowly, very deliberately, um, or it could be just normal walking where you're just paying attention to the sensations in your body, like breathing or sweating or motion, the, the, what you're seeing in your environment, you know, the trees, the birds. There's lots of different things you can focus on that's not going to be your thoughts and, and most people experience if, if you're not just sitting still, your thoughts will feel less intrusive if you do have thoughts and you're moving. So that's that's one principal way is walking meditation. Of course, just exercise. Uh, and we can do exercise with mindfulness by, you know, any experience can start to become have the quality of mindfulness if we disengage from all that internal self-talk. And we re- redirect our focus to the activity of the moment. So if you're running, you can just focus on the sensations of breathing or sweating, again, uh, of movement, all of that. And some of the other things we've discussed as well. I know these mindfulness coloring books are very popular. <laughs> it's not my cup of tea, but uh, you know, just doing having some way to engage because it gives you something some way to engage physically with something and that can help to bind anxiety uh, as well. 
the story art journaling I mentioned earlier, where you write over what you've written can be a really helpful way to address anxiety. So, you know, much of what, when we think about meditation, we do think about the, the person sitting in lotus position, very still, and, and that's, I mean, it's, I wouldn't call it a stereotype. I mean, it's, it is the prototype of meditation, but it's certainly not the only way, and, and not even the only way the Buddha taught. You know, he said, meditate sitting, walking, lying down, standing up, any possible venue and every and any possible activity every everything that we do during our the course of our day can become an informal meditation practice taking a shower getting dressed driving just all eating washing the dishes all of these things are great uh ways to take a break from that all that internal self-talk all the action that we know from the, the default mode network of the brain so apparently that's what those people in the study couldn't do. They didn't, they didn't have a way to distract themselves from their, um, from their internal thought, and that was distressing for them. And, and actually, the study author said at the conclusion of the study, geez, these people could probably use to learn how to meditate because it gives you some way to work with those thoughts. Oh, I, can, I don't just have to sit and listen to all of this programming. It's like you're watching television and you're watching this really bad program. You don't realize you have a remote control. You can switch it to another channel or you can turn the television off. That's one of the metaphors in my uh, 100-day metaphors for mindfulness book. You know, you can switch the channel or turn the, t turn the TV off. It's not necessary to think and tell stories to ourselves all the time we can just pay attention to breathing or what's like, even if you're in a plain room, it could be really fascinating if you pay attention to it, or you study it, or you examine things closely. So, you know, that's the great thing about mindfulness is that any situation we find ourselves in, we have something to do always. That makes sense. And that I think what you've shared is going to be very useful for a lot of people. You have created uh, a lot of resources to help people in this area. I think um, I've read a couple of your books. They are extremely helpful and especially for introverts, I think. But out of all the resources that you've put out there, uh, the website and the interviews you've done, the workshops, which one would you recommend would be the most useful for people right now? I mean, there are there three three books that I wrote on mindfulness. I mentioned one, 108 Metaphors for Mindfulness, Mindfulness A to Z. And the most recent book was Timeless Truths for Modern Mindfulness. And that that's a very practical, I mean, the other, the Metaphors book is kind of fun, but the Timeless Truths is very practical. And it's, each chapter has, um, a theme and, and meditation practices which people can can try so there's that but the introvert uh, the awakened introvert is actually a workbook so there are exercises you write in it you can work through things and there are also meditation so those two you know the introvert work is very helpful in just sort of 
normalizing people's experience. They, you know, they live in this very extroverted world and they didn't realize, well, my experience is normal. I just thought I was less than or wasn't measuring up to the task. And uh, so that, that can be very helpful, helpful too. But, you know, it doesn't have to be my resources either. The, the whole, there are just millions and millions of web, books and websites and teachers, wonderful teachers and places to to train the Inside Meditation Society or Spirit Rock in California or Goenka's Vipassana Meditation Centers or the Barry Center for Buddhist Studies, different apps like uh, 10% Happier. And that's also a good book by Dan Harris. So, you know, there's there's no shortage of, of resources. And of course, you are your own resource. So if people are interested on my website, there are links to some older meditation recordings that I made, which will give you a way to do guided practice, because that can be helpful. And you know, depending on where you live, there are probably resources in your community, uh, meditation centers, you know, that's a good way to get started with things too. find a friend. And that's a way to integrate both the, the, the social and the, the solitude. Again, kind of, that was the Buddha's model, meditating alone in groups of people. That is a rich list of resources to explore for anyone looking to master solitude or simply use meditation and mindfulness to enhance the quality of their life. Thank you, Arnie. I am so grateful to have had him on the show. And if you want a list of the resources mentioned during the show, you can find them on my website, redefinenarrative.com. Search for the podcast episode and there should be a list of resources and links for you to explore. And if you want to get in touch with our guest, the page will have all their relevant information. Now, if you found today's episode useful, please rate and review the show on iTunes. You can also share the episode on Instagram and help others find the information should they need it. Remember to tag me at Mera underscore Krati so that I can thank you for your time. And if you have any particular topic in mind that you would like for me to cover on this show, DM me on Instagram or use my website contact page to get in touch with me. That's it for today. I hope you have a great day. Thank you so much for listening and I will see you next time.